0: Amen. Please turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we're continuing through the Gospel of John. Today we're going to be in chapter 7, verses 37 to 52. And the passage that we're going to be reading through today is the culmination of a week long celebration in Jerusalem called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this feast was commanded by God back in Leviticus 23 to commemorate the time of Israel's wandering in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt, when they lived for those 40 years in booths or tabernacles or tents. So people from all over Israel would make the journey to Jerusalem. They would use leafy branches like palm branches, and they would use other materials, and they would build these small huts, these small booths, in Jerusalem, in the streets of Jerusalem, on tops of houses in Jerusalem, all over the place. And they'd stay in those for the duration of the festival, which was, it was eight days long. So this festival occurred at the completion of the harvest for the year. And so that was a big part of the mindset of the people as they came together in Jerusalem at that time of year. And over the years of this celebration, new traditions were added to it. Uh, Israel is a dry and arid land, valued Water valued water. And on on each day, uh, the chief priest would go to the pool of Siloam. Remember the place where Jesus healed the man who had been lame? He went to the pool of Siloam, took uh, some water up in a bowl. So he'd reach down with a bowl, get some water out of that pool, out of that small place of water. Then he would lead a procession. So the chief priest, with his bowl of water, leading this procession. I'm sure there was no pomp or circumstance. They didn't make any big deal of it, right? Probably not. Probably a big deal. He heads towards uh, the temple with this bowl, with this procession, and he gets there and pours out the bowl of water on the altar at the temple. It was a symbolic ceremony. Uh, What did it symbolize? It symbolized the, the water that God had miraculously given to Israel while they were in the wilderness. So that's fitting, right? They're there at the Feast of Booths and all. It also symbolized a prayer for the provision of water for the next year, which, again, that makes sense. They had just finished up their harvest. They were thanking God for bringing the rain of the last year. They were looking forward to his provision for the next. But then, there was also a third symbol. A third symbol, one that, that will be our focus for the passage today. As Israel looked forward to their coming Messiah. They were looking forward to the coming Messiah. And we might ask, how exactly does pouring out a bowl of water point people to the coming Messiah? That's a great question. And the answer comes from several passages with similar uh, types of water imagery. Uh, Isaiah 30, 35, 43, 44. Uh, There's prophetic statements in these chapters concerning brooks running with water, waters breaking forth, streams of water in the desert, uh, waters in the wilderness and on thirsty lands. Ezekiel 47 and Joel 3 talk of water streaming out from under the temple itself. Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah fourteen eight, where he writes, on that day, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem. And the question, of course, becomes, what is that day? And that day is when the Messiah will come to rule and reign. So there's all these prophecies about waters streaming in the desert, in Jerusalem, from the temple, and when? When Christ Comes When the Christ comes. So as the chief priest would take water from the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, a pool that occasionally stirred but was quite still, he would carry a bit of that water in a bowl. Uh, water doesn't usually go anywhere when it's in a bowl, right? It's just stuck there unless it evaporates out over a long period of time. He takes this bowl with him. And as the chief priest would take this bowl of water and pour it out at the temple, the Jewish people would look forward to the Messiah's coming, uh, representing the promise of living waters, moving, streaming waters that would come. And they read aloud at this moment Isaiah 12, 3, which says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So if you've ever wondered what living waters means, it was kind of like an epiphany moment maybe. Living waters, you think, what is that? All that means is that the waters are continuously flowing from somewhere. So a pond is not living waters. It's still. It's dead waters. But a river that's continually flowing means, that that's the word for living water. So I hope that helps you as we go through this today. And right before, right before that water was poured out by the high priest, other priests would walk around the altar on the seventh day seven times. That rings a bell, right? And they would sing Psalms 113 through 118, which contain passages like this near the end of Psalm 118. So listen to what they would sing as they got ready to pour out this water. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. Remember what Jesus said? I am the gate. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So the priest just sang this as they walk around this altar preparing for this ceremony. This is the context for our passage today. This is what is being celebrated. Uh, This is what is being thought of and longed for. People are saying, thank you, Lord, for bringing us out of Egypt. Thank you for giving us the water when we were a thirsty people in the desert. Thank you, Lord, for giving us another harvest this year. Lord, how long? How long before our Messiah comes and everything is made right? The question then, of course, is what do they mean by being made right? That's the difficulty. With this in our minds, knowing that the Jews are here on this day celebrating these things, looking forward to this. Let's begin reading in John chapter 7 verse 37. It says this: On the last day of the feast, the great day, so imagine those priests singing these words from the Psalms, large a large crowd of people gathered here together, thinking about this water. Jesus stood up amongst this crowd. And cried out. So he didn't just say it. He cried this out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There's much to think about from this statement, but let's start at the beginning. It says, if anyone, right, if anyone, it's important to remember that Jesus' invitations were always universal. The invitation was universal from his mouth, as he would declare to the crowd. We have learned much from Jesus in the last chapter or two about what it takes for a person to believe, what God has to do in order for a person to even want to believe. But regardless, Jesus gave an invitation to this crowd, and who did he include? everybody if anyone is thirsty and then if jesus knowing what he knew about the heart of man gave an open invitation to anyone and everyone who should we his church be reaching out to what do you think how about anyone and everyone is that what you were thinking Yeah. okay you got it you're shaking your heads okay Is there such a thing as a more suited person for being a believer? Is there such a thing as being further ahead than others toward reaching salvation status before Christ? No, no, there's no way. It is always a miracle of God when a person is saved. Always a miracle of God, no matter how much they acted or looked the part beforehand before God did that work. And since everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins before and until God makes them alive in Christ, we should faithfully and obediently and joyfully offer the gospel to anyone, just like Jesus did. So if anyone, he said, if anyone thirsts, thirsts, what does it mean to thirst? Obviously, in the literal sense, thirst is referring to being in need of water. That's the illustration here. Being dehydrated and needing to get something to drink. Uh, The the word thirst has seen an uptick lately and is being used more often now in our culture as a slang word that can mean uh, like being desperate for approval. Could be one meaning. Meaning a person is acting out in order to get people to pay attention to them and to give them praise. They're thirsty for attention. It's also used as a metaphor now for a guy or a girl who's lustfully attracted to someone else. Of course, this use of the idea of thirst is nothing new. People say it more often now than they used to, but it's not new. Proverbs 5 and 7 uses this terminology, with the adulterous woman, and the exhortation for men to drink water from their own cisterns, the the exhortation to be faithful to their own brides. But in these examples, the word is being used to denote... That there's something I want, something I think I need, that I'm not getting. Or if I am getting it, I'm drinking. If I drink it, I am getting it. Remember, Jesus made a similar illustration with the Samaritan woman at the well. This is John 4. She was trying to get a drink from the broken cisterns that were those different men. And whether she wanted relationship, closeness, romance protection, social status, or probably all the above and more, none of these efforts were giving her what she really needed. She was spiritually dead and Jesus offered her eternal life. John four fourteen. Jesus told her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman at the well was thirsty, but she didn't know what for. And some people, uh, they know they're thirsty for something, right? There's something that they want. We try to quench our thirst with money, with, with physical fitness and health, with social status. Some of us might try to quench our thirst by working hard, pursuing more degrees, better job titles. Some of us might even try to quench our thirst with entertainment, movies. Uh, video games, sports on TV, whatever it is, whatever we try to quench our thirst with, those things can become addictive to us because they don't quench our thirst. We somehow become convinced that they will, and we go to it and we just find that we are more thirsty. It's like drinking salt water, and we go for it harder and harder and harder, more dangerously, whatever it might be. Can be addictive. Other people don't ever feel thirsty. They're so happy and distracted with themselves and their lives and their stuff and their amazingness and everything else, even maybe their religion. And they're totally oblivious to any need that they might have that they could possibly, uh, that they could not possibly meet or satisfy on their own. I've got this. And as Jesus said in Matthew 19 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Remember the disciples said, well then who can? With God all things are possible. Either way, the reality is, if you aren't thirsty, if you don't feel thirst, will you go get a drink? Probably not. So in saying if anyone thirsts, what is Jesus saying? Do you feel the thirst? Can you tell that something is missing? Is there an emptiness, a dryness inside of you? And some people who don't know Christ might be blissfully ignorant. I feel just fine, thank you very much. They might even mock you, think that you're weak. And they won't come to Jesus that way, being blinded by pride, sadly headed for an eternity without living water. Others, maybe someone here today feels that thirst. They know it. And you're thirsty for something and you haven't been able to figure it out on your own what it is that you need to quench that thirst. And listen, there's only one way. There's only one thing. Jesus then said, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me." In John 14:6, Jesus said, "I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." In Acts 5.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen, you can choose to go for money. You can choose to look for romance. You can choose to go for successes in this life. You can choose to try different religions. You can try to ignore what you know to be true. You can choose any of those things, but none of those things will ever fix Your great need. You will still be thirsty. None of these things can give you life. You'll still be just as dead as you were before. Only Jesus can give you this living water. And you must accept it from him. And then Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And drink. Okay, so word picture here. Jesus has water. And we need to drink it. How do you do that? And verse 38 answers the question. He says, whoever believes in me. Drinking is believing, okay? What do you have to do to drink water? You receive it, right? You put it in your mouth. You take it in. You swallow it. You drink it. You don't go outside and work harder out in the hot sun to quench your thirst. That's not how you quench your thirst, you receive the water you believe. Okay, so Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now verse 38, whoever believes in me, so the ones who thirst, the ones who come to Jesus, the ones who then drink, who believe in him, as the scripture has said, into his heart will flow rivers of living water. Is that what it just said? No. It says out of. It didn't say into. Uh, Maybe it seems like it should. Come to Jesus and receive. And receive. And drink. And drink and drink and consume. And consume. Isn't it so wonderful? But it doesn't say that. It said this. Whoever believes in me as the scripture said... Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Listen, Christians, you are not a vast reservoir that can hold all the water that Jesus could ever give you. That's not what you are. That's not what he made you to be. You are not a bowl. You are not a bucket. You are not a pond. That's dead water. It doesn't flow It attracts bugs, and it gets stinky, doesn't it? You are not a sponge, Christian, that only exists to soak water up. Those get sour and nasty. Christian, the water that has been given to you is flowing. It's living and moving, and it pours out of you. It must pour out of you other people around you should be getting wet. If you have come to Jesus and believed, you have become a fountain, a river toward the world, toward others. And if not, uh, we might need to get the plungers and the draino out, right? We've got to get things flowing in the right direction, you know? If you are a Christian, if you believed, you the, drank the water drunk or drank, what is it? I hate that word in the past tense. We're going to go with drink. If you drank the water that Jesus gives, and if you are now experiencing this weird sensation of feeling thirsty again, so you following me? After that grammar lesson that never had an answer? If you've come to Jesus, and and if you've believed, and yet you have this sense of being thirsty, and you can't figure out what the problem is, do you need to drink water twice from him? Is that what he told the Samaritan woman? If you drink, you will never need again, right? You'll never thirst again. So if we have this experience of feeling thirsty, then what is the deal? What's the problem? It's not more water that you need to take in. It may be that you need to let the eternal living waters that are trapped inside of you out. If you're feeling stale, serve If you're feeling stale, share the gospel. And you might find that that weird sensation of thirst or emptiness goes right away. Because that's what God has given you to do. Now, verse 39. It's interesting because in it, John gives us a heads up as to the means of this flow. How it works. How it will work. Verse 39. Now this he said about the spirit. John is saying this parenthetically here. He said this about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him, Christians, that's all you and me, were to receive. Who received the Holy Spirit? All those who believe in him. And for what purpose? For flowing of ministry and the gospel. So he says this. He said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Glorified meaning his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Okay, so the person who thirsts, comes to Jesus, drinks, is the one who believes. And when they believe, they receive the Holy Spirit. And then by the ministry of the Spirit, rivers of flowing water come out of their hearts. So since the Spirit had not yet been given when Jesus said this in John 7, let's look at Acts chapter 1 and 2. Acts 1 8 said this, says this, Jesus told the disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power in and become witnesses out. And in Acts two, the day of Pentecost, that process begins, and that was the first day. And then, what about everybody else? First Corinthians twelve verses four through seven, Paul wrote this: Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. The Spirit gives us gifts. Why? He continues to verse five: There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers. Who empowers them all in? everyone to each all who receive the spirit in these gifts each everyone at salvation to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good you are empowered in the spirit right for the common good out it's not for me for my enjoyment and entertainment because I am the end of the reason why God gave the Spirit. No, 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 no. God empowers me, Christian. God empowers you because there's something for you to do, to give, and it's for the common good. It needs to come out. So listen. If you are in Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have already been empowered to be a witness. It's already done. There's not going to be a moment when all of a sudden something clicks and then you have the power. You already have been empowered. You have already been empowered to serve. It's already there. So if you aren't already being a witness and serving, Start getting people wet. And if you already are, keep it up. That's what God has given us to do. Now, let's take a step back for a second and remember. Jesus has just told these people in Jerusalem that he is the fulfillment of their hope. I'm the reason you're pouring that water out of that bowl on that altar. I am. And they were there doing that because they were longing for their Messiah. And then there's Jesus and he goes, Me! You would think, right? What would happen? This is where we are right now. And all that were there, were invited to believe. And since we're now nearly done with the seventh chapter of this gospel, we know what to expect. We know how John works, don't we? What do we always see after Jesus' claims of his divinity, of his Messiahship, all his invitations? What do we see? People's responses. And here we go. First, the believers verse 40 when they heard these words some of the people said this really or or truly this really is the prophet remember Moses prophecy from Deuteronomy 1815 they were confessing belief in the fulfillment of Moses messianic prophecy that it was fulfilled in Jesus right here others said this is the Christ this is him So there's one response. The second response, uh, non-believers. The second part of verse 41. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes, one, from the offspring of David? Check. And two, comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Double check. Right? Right? And you might say, okay, so now they remember Micah 5-2. If you remember uh, earlier in this chapter, up in 27, verse 27, they were sure that no one would know where the Messiah came from. That was what they used before to deny it. And now all of a sudden they've remembered Micah 5-2 and they're using that to deny it. What was the goal? Was it to think of things or was it to deny him? That's what they're doing, right? So they're remembering Micah 5-2, not working for them. And they're trying to disqualify Jesus, even though he did fulfill these prophecies about his lineage, about his birthplace, and, by the way, all the other prophecies that are not listed here. Jesus didn't fulfill 99% of the prophecies. He filled how many? 100% of the prophecies. So we have the believers now, and we have the non-believers. We've seen them evidence themselves. And when you have believers and unbelievers, you have, verse 43... So there was a division among the people over him. No one in the crowd was persuading the other. They both held their ground. And there will be division. Sometimes we're scared of that. Jesus said in Luke 12, Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law because of their belief or unbelief, okay? And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. There are ramifications to believing. There are ramifications to not believing in Jesus. It matters. Sometimes in order to fake the peace, we try to act like it doesn't matter that much. But it matters tremendously, eternally. It's life or death. Verse 44, some of them, those who did not believe, of course, some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. And we know this because it was not yet his time. Now, let's see how these people do under the weight of the fear of man. We often see believers and unbelievers, that response. Increasingly now more we see how they act under the pressure of their leaders and authority. Verse 45. The officers then, and these officers were servants of the chief priests and the Pharisees. They had their own officers. They came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? They were in trouble. And this tells us that the Pharisees had officially given the order for Jesus' arrest. Verse 46. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. He doesn't teach like the rest of you Pharisees and rabbis. He speaks with authority. His own authority. These officers are feeling the pressure from both sides. The Pharisees want Jesus dead. Jesus claimed to be the Christ when they were pouring the water out of the bowl and everything. And people are believing in him. There's this pressure from both sides. What are they going to do? And then the Pharisees turn up the pressure even more. Verse 47. The Pharisees answered them Have you also been deceived? Now, how's anybody going to answer that question? If they believed Jesus, would they have to say, Yes. As a matter of fact, we have been deceived. Happy to report. The question was asked in such a way that there was no good answer except for the one acceptable answer. Verse 48, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? They're saying, no one who has any education or knowledge of the scriptures have believed, have they? Which is the equivalent of the ever-intelligent argument, what are you, stupid? Verse 49, but this crowd, and they said this in a derogatory way, this crowd, this ignorant lot, But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. They're saying, your ignorance will be your downfall. Listen to us. So just a recap of the argument of the Pharisees. They're saying, if you believe what Jesus is saying, you're deceived. You've been hoodwinked. You're stupid and ignorant. You're headed for destruction. You're accursed. And with all this, in the midst of this, dropping words like authority, rulers, to turn up the heat, to crank it up a notch, to add pressure. What are the Pharisees doing to these officers? How are they treating them? But if only one of their own, what if one of their own would intervene and and show that their words were out of line? Then what would happen? Verse 50, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, Nicodemus, who had gone to him, to Jesus before, remember in John 3, under the cover of night, he hadn't believed yet in that first encounter with Jesus, but he was asking, he was thinking. So Nicodemus, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And the answer to that, by the way, is no. In Deuteronomy 1 and 17, God had commanded his people to inquire diligently to see if the accusations were true before moving forward with the proper consequences. But Nicodemus seems to be doing more here than just reminding everyone of their need for a trial. In the face of all of this opposition, there's more to it than that. Nicodemus is encouraging the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, to give this Jesus a hearing, to give Jesus the floor. And let him explain everything fully. And the way Nicodemus asked for the hearing is even instructive and helpful, helpful to us in a weird way. As we just saw, the Pharisees had a, a method to their interrogation, didn't they? There was a method to that. They didn't ask their questions in an honest, open-ended kind of a way. They weren't actually interested in allowing the person to think or to reason or to come up with a response. Their questions were worded in a rhetorical way where you could only answer one way and be seen as agreeable, be seen as intelligent, be seen as respectable. It was demeaning. And now Nicodemus has used that same method on them, just from a different perspective. What did he just do to them? Well, don't you know the law says we can't do anything unless we've given him a trial? He said to them, what are you, ignorant of the scriptures? You think you're going to do this? And though it seems like he's siding with Jesus, do you see that? He's using the same methodology. I think we could call this kind of a thing discipleship residue. Okay, discipleship residue. And, and by that I mean this. Why would Nicodemus ask this question in such a way that there could only be one response? One response that would corner the rest of the Pharisees, they're trapped in it. Well, because that's how everyone who taught him how to be a godly man operated. Remember, Paul called on those he was discipling to follow him as he followed Christ. He told them to do that, to watch and to learn from others who were mature followers of Christ. And so the information for discipleship and growth is just as much caught as it is taught. Therefore, when the leader or leaders conduct themselves in such a way to persuade and to work with people to accomplish their task, those people don't just learn what to do and how to do it in their role, but they also learn how to persuade others. Their persuasion methodology. They've watched, they've seen, and it just rubs off on them. And so they pick up the same tendencies And before long, you have a culture of people from top to bottom, hypothetically, in leadership where all of the people operate the same way. And they or or we, this could happen to us, we're typically blind to those practices. We're blind to it. We're blind to our blindnesses. We get so used to seeing it that we no longer see it. And we no longer see it in ourselves. The Pharisees asked rhetorical questions to pin people to the ground and get them to submit. And now Nicodemus, even though he's presently siding with Jesus, is reflexively, instinctively using the same tactic. Probably doesn't even realize it. And it's not going to work. Verse 52. They, the Pharisees, replied... Are you from Galilee too? This is an insult. They're now unabashedly going after their own. But remember, under their regular way of persuasion, from their perspective, Nicodemus struck the first blow. They're responding to him and what he did to them. They can't believe he would say such a thing. Whether he realizes it or not, he gave the first blow. And their statement, their question, are you from Galilee? It's an insult in the same way we might think of like calling somebody a southerner or something with their slow southern drawl, sipping their moonshine on the back porch with their overalls playing their two-string banjo, their washboard and their spoons. That's ridiculous, right? What I just uttered is ridiculous. But do you understand what I'm saying? Is everybody from the South like that? No, of course not. Are there people in the North that are like that? Yeah, sure. Okay? But people use those kinds of terminologies to be offensive purposefully. And that's what they're doing to Nicodemus. They're saying, what are you, a Galilean? Are you one too? The Galileans were seen, they were caricatured as uneducated, unrefined, undignified, and on and on. And people in Jerusalem could mock and insult others from the city who were being improper by calling them a Galilean. So the Pharisees then called Nicodemus' knowledge of the word into question, since he had just done the same thing to them. And next they said, search and see. They said, search. Start reading your Bible, Nicodemus. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And to that we say, whoops. Um, how about Jonah? Nahum? Hosea? All of these prophets were from Galilee. And these Pharisees aren't stupid, are they? They know the scriptures. What they are is mad. Maybe scared. They feel betrayed. uh, And they're in danger of losing control of this very lucrative situation. Which is perhaps their greatest fear. Losing control. And when your emotions are that high... When you're that thirsty for respect and power, logic can go out the window. Because then you aren't in control and fear has taken over. But Christians, perfect love casts out fear. We might ask, how do I have victory in this? The fear of people, the fear of man. And then we think of a verse like 1 John 4:18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. And we might think, well, if you give a person enough love, if you nurture them the right way, then they won't fear others because they'll have all that confidence and esteem. But what have we learned today about thirsts? If that person is thirsty for love and respect from people, like the Samaritan woman was, if they're clamoring for that and thirsting for that respect from people, what will they never have enough of? Love and respect. Salt water. And that kind of pursuit produces fear. The greater my desire, the greater my despair, the greater my fear, the greater my efforts to make everybody happy with me, to get their approval, fearing their rejection, it makes it get worse and worse and worse. And intimidation. Intimidation is only effective when fear is present in the heart. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God has already given you love, and it's from him. That's a spring that lasts eternally. Christ took on flesh. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He died in our place. He paid the penalty of our sin. And if you've come to Jesus and you've believed in Him, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You, Christian, are on the victory side. We've won. So we operate from a position of strength. We can have all confidence. We operate from a position of strength and victory, and love. There's no need for desperation. We already have rivers of living waters pouring out of us. So then how do we put off fear? And just like the Bible said, love. That intimidating boss, the board of directors, co-workers, love them. Give them your best. Make them successful. Give them what they need to make the company soar. And watch, maybe your fear will vanish. Those kids at school tomorrow, kiddos, show them kindness. Show them kindness, even if you've never met any one of them before. Don't try to watch and investigate all the things that they think are cool and then try to become that. You'll never be able to keep it up. It'll tear you apart. Just be kind. Love them. Love them. Their air of confidence is probably just a cover or tool to come across as less fearful to you anyways. It seems to be working for them, so they're sticking with it so much so that they're willing, right, sometimes to hurt people just to stay on top. But you have Christ. You're already on top and not in a demeaning way. Christ has won the victory. It's over. So be kind. Help them out when you see the opportunity. Be nice. You have every reason for confidence. Every reason. And finally, if you're here today, And you realize, I am so thirsty. Come to Jesus and drink. God has shown his love for you by sending Jesus to die in your place. Confess your sin, repent, and turn to Jesus. Call on him as your Lord and Savior today. And become a follower of Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. We thank you that we can know because of your goodness to us, your grace to us, the mercy that you've already poured out on us. We have eternity to look forward to. It's already in our hearts. We are secure because of your guarantee that you've given us in the Spirit. Because of your promise and your immutability, you're never going to change. All of your promises will always be true, will always be kept. God, may we be so encouraged and thankful because of the love that you've poured out on us, so secure in knowing who you are, and knowing who you're making us to be, that we have every bit of confidence tomorrow as we walk in, to the world that you've called us into so that as we look at people there wouldn't need to be any kind of sense of fear any kind of sense of investigation as to what people want from us so that we can get back from them and have acclaim or fame or approval from people who aren't even on the victory side And God, may we care more about their souls than we do about our own reputation. God, please use us to faithfully pour out of our hearts the living water that you've put there, that you've already empowered us to do. May we be witnesses tomorrow and this week. May we serve one another with joy and gladness for the common good. And God, we thank you that your grace has made this 100% possible all the way for your honor your glory and your praise and we pray this all in christ's name amen